Well, it has been called a miracle. You know, we may have read about the recent collision between a Japan Airlines flight and a Japanese Coast Guard plane in, at Tokyo's Haneda Airport. Uh, five of the Coast Guard crew members died. And, you know, within minutes of the accident, the, the Japan Airlines flight was engulfed in flames that destroyed the aircraft. Uh, yet amazingly, uh, not one of the 367 passengers and the 12 crew members of that airline died. Uh, not one, no serious injury even. You know, many call it a miraculous escape. You know, how did almost 400 people safely evacuate a burning plane that was totally destroyed in, in a matter of minutes? Well, according to aviation safety experts, one of the greatest hindrances to getting people off an aircraft in an emergency is the people themselves. Oftentimes, in an emergency, people stop and they start collecting their bags. Right? And the bags block the aisles, the bags cause jams, and, and people can't exit the aircraft quickly. However, in the case of this recent uh, accident, uh, the, the passengers managed to escape. Why? Simply because they followed instructions. Uh, they listened to the crew members, and they left all their belongings behind. And in this way, they were all rescued. They exited the plane in good time. What's the moral of the story? Watch the airline safety video. Pay attention. Well, but seriously, you know, in a crisis, hearing and obeying could save our lives. Right? In a crisis, hearing and obeying could save our lives. But will it take a crisis to make us listen? You know, during the ministry of the prophet Isaiah, the people of Judah had grown hard of hearing. As God's people, they had experienced His goodness and His faithfulness. But God's word and His promises no longer move their hearts or change their lives. Instead of trusting God, they lived according to worldly wisdom and ways. Rather than look to God, they sought their security and success in the world. Now, Judah had, had settled for a kind of easy believism, religion without repentance, comfort, without commitment. And one couldn't tell that Judah had turned away. The, the temple was still busy, people were still thronging worship, and the people still looked as devout as they had been before. But though the people honoured God with their lips, their hearts were far from Him. And God would not let His people's complacency go unchallenged. Crisis is coming. Who will the people trust when crisis comes? Well, friends, Isaiah's prophecy is a wake-up call with this main message. The Lord is King, and He will bring salvation through judgment. And will we trust in the Lord who saves? Will it take a crisis before we hear and obey. Now, today we begin a new sermon series on Isaiah, and from, from now till May, we will go through the first 39 chapters of the book. Then from July to October, we'll make our way through the rest of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66. So it's going to take a good part of the year, at least six months. And if you look at our passage, which can be found on page 530 of the Pew Bibles, you want to turn there, 
verse, Isaiah 1 verse 1 sets the stage for the rest of the book. It's really a one-verse introduction to what we can expect in the rest of these chapters. Isaiah 1 verse 1 says, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So we, we can learn a couple of things about this book just from this first verse, which introduces the book to us. Firstly, what is this book about? Well, it concerns the vision of Isaiah. Well, when we think about vision, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's something Isaiah saw with his physical eyes. Rather, vision refers to God's revelation of the truth. Right, right, right here in verse 1, we realize that God is not silent. And He has graciously made Himself known that we might trust Him, that we might worship Him. And will we listen to Him? Isaiah is one big vision. You know, it's singular, the vision, singular of Isaiah. It's one big vision of the big God. And these 66 chapters are united by one message of how God is the King. And this God will establish His kingdom through judgment and salvation. If we think about the book of Isaiah, it's really divided into three big sections. And each of these sections is a portrait of the king, different aspects of this king. You know, chapters 1 to 39 present us with a portrait of the holy king. Chapters 40 to 45 present us with the portrait of the servant king. Chapters 56 to 66 present us a portrait of the conquering king, the king who is a warrior, who goes out to fight for his cause, defeats his enemies and establishes his kingdom. So this really, in a nutshell, is the message of Isaiah. God is the king who will establish his kingdom through salvation, through judgment and salvation. It's a big vision that spans Isaiah's time until the end of time. So we, have, we find ourselves in the middle of this vision as well, because this vision is still being unfolded in our lifetimes. It spans Isaiah's time to the end of time. Secondly, who is Isaiah? From verse 1, we know that he's the son of Amos. Now, we have very little biographical information about the prophet. Uh, Jewish tradition claims that Amos was the brother of Amaziah, a king of Judah, which means Isaiah uncle was the king, uh, which means Isaiah belonged to the royal family. Well, this may explain uh, Isaiah's easy access to Judah's king. Uh, but more significant is the prophet's name. Isaiah means the Lord saves, which sums up for us the message of the book, the Lord saves. Now, where and when does Isaiah's vision take place? Well, again, verse 1 says, it concerns the nation of Judah. And that during Isaiah's time, Israel had been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel with Samaria at its cap as its capital, and the southern kingdom of Judah with Jerusalem as its capital. Well, Isaiah was exercising his ministry mainly in the southern kingdom of Judah. And the vision occurs during the, the reign of four kings of Judah. It's quite a long period of time, possibly between 740 BC to 701 BC, so it's a span of almost 40 years. So these four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. 
Now, the reign of these four kings was characterized by an age of anxiety. You know, as, as you read the book of Isaiah, you, you realize that a couple of crises keep coming up. Firstly, there's a, there's, a, there's a crisis of the northern kingdom and Syria being hostile to Judah. That's, what, that's the first crisis. Then you have the second crisis of Assyria, the kingdom of Assyria threatening to overwhelm Judah, followed by the crisis of Babylon. And indeed, the, the, the second half of the book of Isaiah happens with the, the nation already in exile in Babylon. It's an age of anxiety with Judah's survival constantly being threatened by the surrounding nations. Judah was tempted again and again to trust in the world, to form all kinds of political and military alliances, to see itself through crisis. And Judah was tempted to rely on worldly things rather than rely on God. And we too feel the pull of the world, don't we? So Isaiah's prophecy remains as relevant to us today as it did to its original hearers 2,700 years ago. Well, the first chapter of Isaiah, which we'll go through this morning, prepares us for the rest of the book. And God really wants us to know this. The Lord saves by convicting, calling, and cleansing. And this is the big idea of chapter 1. The Lord saves by convicting, by calling, and by cleansing. So let's look at verses 2 to 9. The Lord convicts. Let me read that out for us. Isaiah 1, verses 2 to 9. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in the vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Isaiah opens with a courtroom scene. Heaven and earth are summoned to be the witnesses. God is the accuser. He says in verse 1, the Lord has spoken. And who stands accused? Who is in the dock? Well, God's children or sons. Well, during the Exodus, the Lord called Israel his firstborn son, saved Israel from Egypt. God has been a father to his people, graciously saving them, giving them a home in the promised land. And he has lovingly reared them, brought them up, nurturing them, providing for their every need, Yet Judah has responded ungratefully. And 
Isaiah compares Judah to animals, even simple animals like ox, oxen and donkey recognize their masters, but Judah neither knows nor understands. In verse 4 is a lament describing Judah's sad state. Judah was saved for the glory of God. The nation was meant to glorify God, but it has become a sinful nation. Instead of serving their heavenly father, the people have forsaken him. Corrupted by sin, they live as though they are offspring of evildoers rather than children of the living God. They are rebellious, wayward children who have turned away from God. And he knows the pain of having children who have walked away from him. You see the grief of God's heart here in these verses. You know, some of us are also grieving the spiritual state of our children. I think these verses tell us that we can turn to God, even in our grief and sorrow for them. We can turn to God for wisdom and comfort and know that He understands. He is a father who grieves the spiritual condition of His children. God is the Holy One of Israel. Now, this title, Holy One of Israel, is quite distinctive to Isaiah. Now, he uses it about 25 times across the book. And this title emphasizes the holiness of God. God is, as we've sung, holy, 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 thrice holy, very, very, very holy. He is high and lifted up. But Judah has despised and dishonored him, counting this holy God as unworthy, undeserving of their worship, and obedience. I think in this, we, we see the, the nature of sin, the, the sinfulness of sin. You know, sometimes we apologize for things that we say or things that we do, and we say something along the lines of, I'm sorry, it's not, nothing personal, right? didn't, didn't mean it personally. Well, well, we can't say that about sin, can we? Well, sin is intensely personal. It is first and foremost a sin against a person, not just the people we sin against, but fundamentally, fundamentally sin against the Holy One. It is a personal affront against the Holy One. God is against sin. Right? Sin goes against who He is. Sin goes against what He stands for. Sin goes against His very character, His very nature, the very essence of God. You know, when we sin, it's not just a matter of breaking an abstract or impersonal rule or law, but it is saying to God, I don't think you're right. It's shaking the fist in God's face and saying, I, I don't want to live like you. You're wrong. You can imagine how sin separates us from the holy God. Therefore, it's no surprise that verse 4 tells us that Judah is utterly estranged. You know, sin is ingratitude to God, to whom we have everything, from whom we have everything. You know, God gave us life and breath. He provides for us daily, meets our needs. You know, all that we have ultimately comes from God. But sin snubs the God who has been so good to us. And God made us in His image to know Him, to enjoy Him forever. He richly provides for us all things that we need. But like Judah, we have idolized the gifts and rejected the giver. 
For example, we base our well-being, we base our sense of identity, we find our meaning and security in work, in success. We selfishly pursue our own pleasure and convenience. We trust in what we have, we trust in what we can do. Instead of being thankful, we complain and even blame God when things don't go our way. And we, we should realize, brothers and sisters, that as Christians, we belong to God twice over. He is not only our Creator, but He is also our Redeemer. And living in the light of Christ, we have received much greater grace and privilege. And Jesus died for sinners that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. If Jesus has laid down His life for us, then how are we living for Him? Well, these verses are a mirror to help us examine our relationship with God. How are we doing this morning? How will we characterize the condition of our relationship with God? Have we despised the Holy One? You know, how have we thought little or thought lightly about God, of the things of God? Have we made life all about ourselves rather than the worship of God? Oh, beloved, as we come to these challenging verses, how is the Lord convicting us of our need to return to Him? That is the whole point of Isaiah, to return to the Lord who saves. You know, and God mercifully tells us the truth about ourselves. I, I think we need that kind of severe mercy in our lives where someone is willing to tell us the truth about ourselves. I, I think a good friend will do that for us someone who knows us, who comes alongside us, who, who points us, who points out to us areas of need, points out blind spots to us. Well, God is doing that for us here in this passage because we don't always see our own need. You know, verses 5 and 6 liken Judah to a badly beaten man who doesn't feel his injuries enough to get help although he is covered with bruises and sores from head to toe. Hence the question, why will you still be struck down? Don't you realize that you're badly beaten up? Why will you continue to rebel? Don't we realize that our sin is leaving us bruised and broken? Now, why not turn and be healed? True revival must begin with conviction of sin. You know, anything else is not true revival. The Bible says very clearly that true revival begins with the conviction of sin. It's not just a feeling, it's not some emotional high, but it begins actually low. As God presses the weight of our sin upon our hearts. I think we see this in Acts 2 at Pentecost. P Peter preaches a sermon, and what happens to his hearers? They are cut to the heart. That's conviction of sin right there. And I pray that as we go through this book, that God will pierce our hearts, that He'll leave us disturbed in a good way. That God will not leave us undisturbed in our sin and complacency. 
May God pierce our hearts. May He help us see our own sin. And what specific sin is God pointing out to us? How is God bringing into the light the secret sins that we cherish in the dark? And this is the reason why we confess our sins regularly in the service. Uh, we do so to encourage a healthy, godly self-reflection regularly, lest our hearts become proud or hardened to the things of God. And as we, as we come, as we gather as God's people, it's a reminder to us that we should reflect on the state of our hearts as we come before God and to come before Him regularly, confessing our need for forgiveness, confessing our need for Christ. This is the reason why we share our sin struggles with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. We do so to make sure our hearts are soft towards the things of God, that our hearts are not hardened or self-deceived, that we continue to share our struggles so that we can encourage one another and not be led astray by the deceitfulness of sin. So, beloved, don't harden our hearts and resist them as we consider these verses. Yes, it's painful and humbling when God exposes us, but realize that God wounds in order to heal. God tears down in order to build up. And may God make us receptive to His loving rebuke of us. And God wants us to see the consequences of sin. Isaiah sees the coming judgment on unrepentant Judah. Verses 7 to 8 describe how foreign invaders have left the trail of destruction in their wake. Judah is like a broken down shack, like a dilapidated hut in the middle of a field. Basically, sin brings death. Yet, even in judgment, God remembers mercy. Judah may have forsaken the Lord, but the Lord has not forsaken His people. Notice how He still calls them, my people, in verse 3. And look at verse 9. Although Judah deserves to be destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah, those two Old Testament cities that were guilty of blatant sin, yet God will graciously preserve a remnant. The Almighty Lord of hosts will use His power to save a few survivors. And from this remnant, the Lord will keep His promise to save. So the Lord convicts. Secondly, the Lord calls. Follow as I read from verses 10 to 20. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had, I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. 
seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. While Judah may have been spared the fate of those two wicked cities, they cannot claim to be more righteous. You notice how in verse 10, Judah is not merely like Sodom, Judah is Sodom. Judah is not merely like Gomorrah, Judah is Gomorrah. I mean, it's a striking image used in verse 10. God's people were supposed to be His witnesses, distinct in the world. But in calling Judah, Sodom and Gomorrah, God is making the point that His people have become just like the nations. Whereas Sodom and Gomorrah's sins were blatant and obvious, Judah's sin is more subtle. On the surface, Judah looks very religious. You know, verses 1, 11 to 14 uh, paint us a picture of Judah's religiosity. They offer sacrifices, costly sacrifices even. They go to the temple regularly. They observe many festivals and feasts. In fact, they seem to be calling for more. Yet God is not pleased. Right? These verses 11 to 14 say, God says, I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Verse 12, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Verse 14, bring no more. Or verse 13, bring no more vain offerings. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. Very strong language that God is using. Verse 15, God says he will not hear their prayers. What's Judah's problem? It's not blatant sin like Sodom and Gomorrah. Their problem is not irreligion. Judah's problem is empty religion. You know, yes, God did command temple worship. Yes, God did command the offerings. Yes, these feasts and festivals, God did command as well. But what makes these outward forms of religion meaningful is when they flow out of the inward worship of the heart. Religion without repentance is useless. In fact, it is downright dangerous because our religiosity can blind us to our true spiritual need. It's easy to think we're okay because we show up at church, that we're here regularly. It's easy to think we're okay because we do our quiet times every morning. It's easy to, do, to think we're okay because we give so much money to this or that cause or we contribute to the needs of the church. It's easy to think we're okay because we're so busy with religious routines, programs, activities, serving, ministry work. Ah, but friends, what is the condition of our hearts before God this morning? What does God want of us? What does God really want from us? Not merely outward religion, but inward faith and obedience. You know, this is why we baptize believers only. Baptism is the outward sign 
But what makes the outward sign significant and meaningful is that it is accompanied by the inward reality of saving faith. Baptism merely as an outward sign does nothing. Look at verse 10. What God wants is that we hear the word of the Lord and give ear to the teaching of our God, that we hear and obey. So are we just going through the religious motions or are we truly hearing and obeying God? Well, friends, we need to beware of wanting to look godly more than wanting to actually be godly. Jesus condemns self-righteous religious hypocrisy. Two men went up to the church to pray, one a religious leader, the other a gangster. The religious leader, possibly a pastor, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortionists, unjust, adulterers, even like this gangster over here. I serve, I'm involved in ministry, I fast, I give tithes. But the gangster, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Judah's religion was worthless because it did not transform their lives, because it did not transform their relationships and the way they treated others. The people, including their leaders, were corrupt, unrighteous, unjust. Instead of caring for the vulnerable, they exploited them. They took advantage of them. Now, friends, we need to realize that if we truly worship God, then we will also love those made in His image. What God wants is not churchgoers. What God really wants is a spiritual family, a, a, a true covenant community united by a common love for Christ and a common love for one another. A spiritual family that shows Christ-like love for one another as well as for others. As we heard from James 1 in our reading earlier, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. In other words, to look out for the vulnerable among us, to consider those who are in need around us and to take active steps, practical steps, to love them and care for them. That, beloved, is true religion, according to the Bible. And James goes on to say, true religion also means keeping oneself unstained from the world. Oh, friends, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. You know, GBC, may we be more concerned about the state of our hearts than we are about keeping up religious appearances. Now, may we be characterized by Christ-like love for the weak, for the suffering, 
for the vulnerable, for the marginalized, and for the strangers in our midst. Now, true worship shows itself in how we treat other people, especially those who are of the community of the faith. True religion shows itself in how we love and serve one another. It will show in how we uphold mercy and justice in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces. I, th I think this is one great area for us to think about how we can be faithful in loving and showing mercy in these areas of influence that God has placed us. A good conversation topic to have over lunch. Talk to one another about how we can show love and mercy in our homes, in our schools, in our workplaces. What does it look like to uphold these things where we work, where we go to school, where we live? The Lord calls us to forsake our sins and to return to Him. Verses 16 and 17, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. But how can we make ourselves clean? You know, how are we able to do these things? The Lord calls us to trust in Him for full forgiveness. We must come to an end of ourselves and to look to the Lord to save us. Our sin is irrational, it's unreasonable. But God calls us to reason with Him. Our sin has left a stain that we cannot remove, but God can make us clean. And He invites us to come, to come to Him. He says, be reasonable. Right? Why will you continue in your sin when I offer to you free forgiveness? Why will you continue to suffer under the stain of your sin when I can make you clean? Be reasonable. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Oh, what can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What a wonderful expression of God's heart for His own. Though we have rebelled against Him, He still takes the initiative to seek us out and to bring us back. You know, our sin is great, but God's grace is greater than all our sin. And the Lord graciously calls us to come to Him and He offers to us free forgiveness and He promises good to us if we would only turn to Him, if we would only be willing and obedient. Now let's, be, let's be reasonable. Why should we go on rejecting God's grace and perish when we have the opportunity to live? Finally, the Lord cleanses, looking at verses 21 to 31. Let me read those for us. How the Faithful city has become a whore, she who is full of justice, righteousness lodged in her, but now murderous. Your silver has become dross, your best wine mixed with water, your princes are rebels and companions of thieves, everyone loves a bribe, runs after gifts, they do not bring justice to the fatherless and the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, 
Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself on my foes. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness. But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks that you desired and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water. And the strong shall become tinder and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. The Lord convicts us of sin. The Lord calls us to return to him the Lord cleanses. Now, Judah was supposed to be a holy nation. They were redeemed for worship, to display God's glory. Jerusalem was meant to be a city on a hill, bearing witness to God's grace in a sin-sick world. And for a while, Judah was faithful, especially under the reign of King David and King Solomon for a season. Judah was a light for the nations. And the nations came to Jerusalem to seek the Lord because he was with his people. But Isaiah tells us here that the faithful city has become unfaithful. Judah has turned away from her bridegroom. Judah has committed spiritual adultery, abandoning the true God, forsaking her husband to worship idols. And this, really, this is the point of verses 21 to 23. We read about how sin has corrupted what was once pure and precious. Instead of being a witness to the world, Judah became just like the world. Like Judah, the church is to be a display of God's glory. Our witness as God's people depends on our holiness. Now, as it says in James 1, true religion means keeping ourselves unstained from the world. But how might the things of the world, the desires of the flesh, the pride, of life, the desires of the eyes, how might these things be enticing us away from God? Well, these verses tell us that God will not stand idly by while His unfaithful people drag His name through the mud. Now look at verse 24. The Holy One of Israel is also the Mighty One of Israel. The Lord of hosts will wage war against sin. Sinners make themselves God's enemies, and God will avenge himself on his foes. Sin shall not go unpunished, because God will protect the glory of his name and uphold his righteousness. It's a sober warning to us not to be content with being a Christian in name only. If we profess Christ, if we take the name of Christ upon ourselves, then how are we living a life worthy of His gospel? Do not be deceived, friends. God is not mocked. Whatever we sow, we will also reap. You know, th these verses show us that God is utterly committed to His own holiness and righteousness. Well, this is both a warning as well as a comfort to us. Because God is resolved to purify His people because he's committed to his own holiness. He's committed to the glory of his name. 
and therefore He will sanctify His people. That is a comfort to His people. Look at verses 25 to 26. I will turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counsellors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. The Lord promises to cleanse Jerusalem through the purifying fires of judgment so that the city will again be faithful. That's how committed God is to the holiness of His name, to the holiness of His people. And He will graciously preserve a purified remnant for His glory. God cares deeply about the holiness of His people because we bear His name. And we can trust that He is at work in His church, sanctifying us and growing us to be His holy people. Our Father disciplines us for our good, that we may be holy as He is holy. Now, beloved, if, if this is our Father's concern and we are children of this Heavenly Father, then shouldn't we also care about one another's holiness? Shouldn't our holiness and spiritual well-being be our concern as well? And shouldn't we love one another by caring for one another in these ways? So encourage one another. Disciple one another towards Christ to grow in holiness and grace. And God is with us as we display His holy love for one another. Now, friends, will we trust in the Lord who saves? Those who stubbornly refuse to return to God will perish. The, the oaks and gardens mentioned in verse 29 represent human strength and accomplishments, but they cannot save. And those who trust in them, in their oaks, in their gardens, in their strength and what they can do, says in verse 29 that they will lose everything in the fire of God's judgment. Sorry, verse 31. The strong shall become tinder and his work a spark, and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. But those who turn and trust in the Lord shall be saved. How? Look at verse 27. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. The holy God will save through judgment, and He will do so in a way that does not compromise either His justice or His righteousness. Because God is just, He must punish sin. But God, who is gracious and merciful, sent His Son, Jesus, to die for sinners like us. And at the cross, Jesus took on Himself the full weight of God's wrath, God's judgment in our place, so that we can be forgiven if we would only turn away from our sins and put our trust in Christ. We trust in Him alone for salvation. Isaiah will go on to say in chapter 53 that this Messiah, this servant was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. Jesus can give us new life because He has defeated sin and death through His death and through His resurrection. 
Oh friends, this is the good news that Isaiah is pushing us towards. God convicts us of sin. He calls us to turn to Him. And God offers us cleansing through the finished work of His Son who upholds God's justice and righteousness through the cross. And this is the message of Isaiah for us. The Lord saves. And will we hear and obey Him? Will we trust in the Lord who saves?